This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odeschulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Perspective is a radio program that presents a Baha'i perspective on life through interviews. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org. That's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G. Or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing an interview with Chet McCoskey, a graphic designer that started his career and family in Ireland then returned to the U.S. and established himself in Connecticut. He joined an industrial design firm in Farmington, Connecticut, and ended up buying the firm with a partner. I started the interview by asking Chet where he grew up, and what was it like growing up there? Well, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. Okay. And uh, actually lived in the inner city, in the Polish neighborhoods of Cleveland. I went to uh, Cleveland South in high school, and 75% of the, the kids in the school were all Polish. And I, and I tell you, I thought that the country was Polish and Catholic. It didn't occur to me that that wasn't the way everywhere was in the United States. Mm. Yeah. Till, till about what age? Well, <laughs> I, kind of, I kind of had a sense that you know, things were different. You did, you did watch as TV. As I got old, I did watch TV. Yeah, but as I um, traveled and uh, left Ohio, you know, I lived in Ohio all my life through through art school, mm-hmm. and uh, then uh, we moved. Mary, I got married and moved to Ireland, mm-hmm. and of course, living in Ireland and then in New England, where where we've been for thirty three years. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a different world. Right. It's not right. like the inner city of Cleveland. Right. And even that has changed. Mm-hmm. So. Right. What college did you go to, or what art school did you go to? I went to the Cleveland Institute of Art. Mm-hmm. It's one of the professional art schools. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a group of them that it's a five-year course to get a BFA. Mm-hmm. The uh, you know it's a very good art school. And art was something that you discovered in yourself as long as you can remember. Oh yeah, I always I always drew and uh, could paint and um, and I enjoyed it very much. Mm-hmm. And so after high school, when I was trying to decide what I wanted to do, I thought, why not do something I really like? Mm. And drawing and painting was, mm-hmm. you know, the thing that I enjoyed the most. So right. I said, why, gosh, why don't I make a living doing this? Yeah. Was there any resistance from your father or mother like, no. to get a real job? <clears throat> no, not at all. <laughs> no, not at all. We were not, it wasn't a professional family. In fact, I was the first person in my, the history of my family to graduate from high school. Oh, wow. Um, and to go to you know, any kind of after high, you know, college level training was pretty unusual I and mean, they were just surprised and glad that i guess i chose to do that but mm-hmm. they were always supportive of it no they 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 thought it was fine if whatever i wanted to do i could do it and what was your father's occupation my father was in, in well when i was in high school he he was a cleveland joint board manager for the amalgamated clothing workers union okay in, th- in other words he was the, a union there was a senior yeah that's right a labor leader and he was the senior executive for the state of ohio for the for the clothing workers and he was also a joint a vice president of the, of the joint board uh, bank 
and so he would spend a lot of time in New York for meetings. But whenever a presidential candidate would come to Ohio or mm-hmm. to Cleveland, mm-hmm. my dad was the one who would host him, introduce him. I mean, he was very involved in politics. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. and in fact, he made many trips, about seven trips to Israel, because he would work with the Jewish, well, the Amalgamated Clothing Workers is a largely Jewish organization, at least in management. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but also they support Jewish uh, organizations and labor uh, programs in this country and raise money and so on. So uh, they would ask him to come to Israel as part of the effort between the labor in the U.S. and labor organizations in Israel. Mm. So, mm-hmm. so he actually spent a lot of time in Israel before I ever discovered you know, that there was a Baha'i faith that had a connection there as well. I see. And did your father ever give you the opportunity to meet a president? No. No, he has, he has all these photos on his wall, had all these photos on his wall, of these, you know, all these Great important leaders. folks. Yeah. And, uh, and I remember the, uh, the Histodrud, Jewish labor organization in the United States, had a kind of an honoring ceremony for my father, and it was a big event, you know, hundreds of people in the audience, and there were, the governor was there, and the state senators, and congress people, they were all there, and they gave little speeches about my dad, and... But you know that was a part of his life. I never had yeah. anything to do with it. Yeah. I didn't know about it, and uh, pretty much I was kind of after art school gone, and not in. I haven't been in Cleveland, living in Cleveland for thirty-three years. Right now, what was art school like? Well, art school was terrific. <laughs> I entered to become a painter, and then found myself with people who were real painters, and uh, decided that maybe that wasn't the best course for me, as much as I enjoyed it. But then I discovered graphic design. I never knew of it. I mean, it, it was just one of these professions that's invisible. It's everywhere. You know, everything you read, you touch, you know, movie titles, books, newspapers, objects, packaging. Yeah, but it's all graphic designers do that stuff. Yeah, but it wasn't until I got to art school that I discovered that that was a career. And I thought, wow, this is great. I can get a real job <laughs> and be a designer. And it... That's what I did all my life, mm. and still do some of that. Mm-hmm. So after you graduated, uh, what happened? Art school. I worked for a design consulting firm in uh, in Cleveland. It was it was mm. called Schreckengost, Greenley and Hess. And uh, in fact, Victor Schreckengost was just fla- a couple weeks ago given the highest award in this country, um, a congressional award as where you're a um, a valuable resource, a a creative force that has changed things in this country. I got to work with him, who was was a genius and a a, a real hero to industrial designers in this country. That was wonderful. That was my first job and Mm -hmm. worked there for a couple of years. But then I met my wife. We got married and we left and moved to Ireland. So it was more than graphic design then that... It was an industrial design firm that I joined. Okay. And in the firm, I was a graphic... You know, industrial design firms, they design products, but when they do products, they also Mm -hmm. do communications for the product and packaging. Uh. Industrial designers aren't trained for that. So industrial design firms also employ graphic designers. So I did the communications, logos, um, symbols, identities... Brochures and packaging for objects that the industrial design firm uh, developed for companies. Well, there are many things that you've actually used and seen that Victor Schreckengoss designed. 
if, if like if kids used to have the pedal cars, you know, he was he was the first to design those things and made you know the classic vehicles that children used and mm. really developed them. Mm-hmm. And bicycles he designed. And in fact, most of us as kids probably road bikes that Victor Schreckengoss designed. Wow. But he designed many many things um, mm. from. Uh, you know, utilitarian objects mm-hmm. like that, and uh, as well as household goods and mm-hmm. industrial goods as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, it, in fact, there's been exhibits of his work in museums all over the country, particularly because he celebrated his hundredth anniversary. He's hundred years old. This year. He's still alive, oh, wow. and he's hundred years old uh, last year. And so there were exhibits, traveling exhibits, in many museums. In, you know, and they, it was here, it was in Boston, in New York, and you know, many places. Wow! So it was very nice to to start this way with him and his partners. He had two other partners who were also uh, remarkable men and, mm-hmm. and very, very good designers. And so I was delighted to start my career that way. But I was working for an industrial design firm, and I really wanted to uh, do something else. Work for uh, there are firms that are specialized in just graphic design design consulting firms that don't do product design. So that's what I really was looking for. Mm-hmm. Now tell me how you met Mary Kay, your wife. <laughs> <laughs> I had I was living in Little Italy in Cleveland. Okay. And uh, she was as well. And I was in, uh, it's, it's, it's a neighborhood, very dense neighborhood, where they had a row of houses on the street, and then behind it, what would have been a backyard, another row of houses were built, just to increase the <laughs> utilization of the space. And so I was living in a house in back. I had two roommates who I never saw. They worked for Penn Central Railroad. And one of them had a motorcycle they left in the west side of Cleveland and asked me to get it for him and haul it back. So I had this big yellow Hertz rental truck. And I got the motorcycle, and I hauled it back to our apartment to store it in the garage. And as I was backing in, Mary Kay was taking out the garbage. We shared a garbage can. And she looked up, and she said, What a big yellow truck. And I thought, What a dumb thing to say. Of course, it was a yellow truck, and it was big. It was a Hertz truck. And uh, she invited me up for dinner. She made steak. It really was not very good, but she was terrific, and uh, I liked her right away. She was the funniest person I ever met. So how is it that just that was the first meeting and she invited you to dinner? Yeah, yeah. Well, you must be a pretty charismatic person. (laughs) I've never run into a situation where I just met a woman woman, and she just, like, invites me to dinner. No, I think she must have been bored and pretty desperate. (laughs) (laughs) It turned out that we've known... She was getting my mail for a year. We've been living there a year and never seen each other, never Mm -hmm. crossed paths. She was getting my draft notices. And... uh, now, how was she ending up with them? Well, she lived in the building in front. The post off, the, you know, the mail delivery uh, person was confused and would put the mail in the wrong building. And then she would find it, and then she'd go put it in our, my building, where I live, right behind her. So she knew of me for all that time. And also, I, I had a, a cool car that she saw, a Morgan, a 1959 Morgan, the last of the handmade British sports cars, if you know what a Morgan is. It's amazing. Not. <laughs> amazing car. I can show, I have models of them. I'll okay. show them to you. I don't own one now, but in any event, that was the car I drove. And so everybody saw that car, and it was very unusual and very distinctive. And So maybe maybe it was my draft notices and my Morgan that made her feel like she wanted to get to know who this guy is. <laughs> uh, so you got married soon after. We did. We were married, I think, within six months or mm-hmm. so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you mentioned you 
moved to Ireland. Now, what were the uh, motivators to doing that? You know, I was always attracted to Ireland. Um, even though I grew up in a Polish family and there's no Irish in our family, I've al- I always was drawn to things Irish. Movies, music in particular, stories, uh, literature, uh, just anything about the country was appealing. And, you know, maybe the most persuasive, I have to admit, the most persuasive thing was the, the movie with John Wayne, The Quiet Man. And, you know, I just love, that was my favorite film. It still is. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when I would see it, I would wonder, now wait a minute, here I am in, you know, the Polish neighborhoods of Cleveland, and there's a place like this in The Quiet Man. What am I doing here? Why don't I go there? And I thought, hey, everybody needs designers. I can make a living wherever I go. Mm-hmm. So I decided to give it a try. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mary Kay was also interested. She, in fact, she has an Irish background. Um, her mother's side of the family is all Irish. So she was willing, and the two of us got married and packed our ba- sold everything, packed our bags, and arrived in Ireland with uh, four suitcases, one for each arm, <laughs> and uh, started off there. And where did you start in Ireland? In Dublin. In Dublin. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to live and work in the west of Ireland, in Galway or Cork. And today you could, but at the time I did this, there wasn't much work there. Everything was in Dublin. Mm-hmm. In fact, any industry you can think of, it, it was Dublin was the place to be, and especially for design. Mm. There was really nothing in the country. Mm. And uh, so, anyway, we ended up in Dublin, which wasn't a bad, you know, second uh, choice because Dublin's a wonderful city. It was then; it, it is now. And so, we we lived there for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And you moved to other parts of Ireland? No, no, no. I worked. I worked the for um, McConnell's Advertising in Dublin, and we never moved anywhere. We mm-hmm. just stayed in Dublin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We lived in the foothills of the Wicklow Mountains, about six miles out of Dublin, on the 44 bus route. That was my way to work. I didn't own a car. A lot of walking and trains and buses, and it was just great. Mm. The best way to get around. Mm-hmm. And mm. uh, it was a real adventure Yeah, for, yeah. for those two years. Mm. Yeah. So you were in Ireland for two years? Yes. And then what caused you to decide to leave Ireland after two years? Well, you know, we were there for two years, and as much as I enjoyed the work, the quality of the clients and the kind of design work I was doing wasn't up to the demands and the level of work in the United States, particularly with the premier design firms here. And how did you know that? Well, you just know it from reading trade, li- <clears throat> trade literature and, and observing it. I mean, I was, li- I was doing it. You know, had done design in the United States, working with very high-level designers, and and I was working in Ireland, and I was working with the top group there. But it, the you know the budgets were not large enough to support you know, a lot of things you might want to do, and the demand for quality, and uh, the pricing, you know, the, the the amount that they're willing to pay to get the work done forced you to do things that were very expeditious, and and it was fine, and good work was done, but. It wasn't the way I wanted to make my living, and I felt that someday, you know, I would need to be back in the United States to get more experience there, because I was still pretty young in my mid twenties. The other thing was we had, our daughter was born there, so all of a sudden we didn't intend to go back um, originally, but and we didn't necessarily know that we were going to have children right away. But our daughter was born ten months after we were married, and uh, all of a sudden we had a different idea about the daughter being exposed to the family and the family seeing her. It was Sarah, our daughter Sarah. And so we came back in order for 
us to get access to the family, mm-hmm. and she would grow up knowing the family. Mm-hmm. We, we just didn't think living in Ireland was the right thing to do at that time. Right. It could have been fine, and I think we would have loved it, but yeah. we didn't do it. Mm-hmm. We didn't stay. Mm-hmm. And it was in Ireland that you ran into the Baha'i faith? It was. I never heard of the Baha'i faith in the United States. And we arrived in Ireland, found very quick, shortly, Mary Kay was, uh, was, was pregnant and decided as the pregnancy was moving on that breastfeeding was the way to do it and connected with the La Leche League who gave us a, an advisor who turned out to be a Baha'i, a Jane O'Brien. And her husband, Philip O'Brien, was an actor and producer. Mary Kay's background, she was tra- her undergraduate degree was in theater, and so was her graduate degree. Mm. It was in theater. So, I mean, we intended to go to Ireland, and she was going to work in theater, and I was going to work as a designer, a graphic designer. And uh, so with the baby coming, she couldn't get a job, of course, but we struck it with these, this couple. And, you know, Philip and J- Mary Kay were just terrific together. They just, they knew each other, they understood each other, they understood literature, they were both trained as actors, they both performed as actors, I mean, they they got on so well. And Jane and I were the more introverted type, and uh, we got on very well as well, also, and uh, and also that Jane was very interested in natural foods and natural medicine, so that was an interest of ours too, before we went to Ireland, and Mary Kay's in particular. So we just became very good friends with these people, and it turns out they were Baha'is, and we knew them for two years, but they never told us anything about this religion. And we, quite honestly, didn't particularly care. We weren't interested. We were Roman Catholic and happy to be so and not looking for anything. So you were active Catholics going to Mass yeah. and all that good stuff? Yeah, I would say we were a bit informal about it. Uh, <laughs> I didn't go all the time. But, you know, I went to Mass because uh, it was my religion, but also... It was part of the culture of Ireland, and to be with the people of Ireland, that's you need to do what they do, and Mass was an important thing. Also, outside of the church on Sunday morning, with all these tables lined up with all the newspapers, and Ireland is a huge newspaper-reading population. Not one paper, but they read multiple papers. When people come out of church, they pick up one, two, three papers under their arm and spend, you know, lots of hours. Re- they were very well-informed people, and so I just loved that whole atmosphere going to Mass, coming out afterwards, getting the newspapers, going home and reading them. I mean, I felt like I was being Irish, even though I know it was only superficial. Uh, but the experience was a good experience. And, um, and and so, but we grew up with no problems being Roman Catholic. It's a wonderful religion, and, mm-hmm. and we thought, you know, that's probably what we do with our daughter as well. How did things develop as you got to know Jane and... Well, you know, it was really strange. Now, <laughs> afterwards... We could reflect on it, and it was very kind of kind of odd because, you know, they were very deeply involved in Baha'i things. We go to their home often, you know, every week, and we even went in business with them. I left the, my design, for the, the, you know, the advertising agency, and Mary Kay and I set up a business called the Good Earth Trading Company, and we imported natural foods from Belgium and England and sold them in Ireland, and we did this for a, a number of months, and, and we did this with Philip and Jane. The four of us did it. And, uh, but they never told us about their religion because we never asked. And we thought it was one of those things you weren't to do. You didn't ask people about their religion. So, so we didn't pay any attention to it, and, and they never pushed it on us. We never went to a Baha'i meeting, or they never said anything about what it was about. And then uh, we decided to leave the country, and we dissolved the business. 
sold our stock to a store in Dublin. And um, Philip came to our house once we were packing to get ready to leave, and he said, how are you going to raise that child? In what religion? We said, well, Roman Catholic. That's what we are. You know, Mary Kay went through all Catholic girls, grade school, high school, and even college in Buffalo, New York. And so, I mean, we were, it was mainstream Catholic. And being in Ireland, of course, it's another Catholic country, mm. and a very Catholic country, in, in the Republic anyways. But we told him, we said, well, as, as Catholics, and he goes, well, you know something? We're good friends. <laughs> we like each other. We're in business together. And you know nothing about our religion. Before you leave this country, can we at least tell you about our religion? And we said, of course you could. We could have done it any time if you had asked. <laughs> you know? And they never asked, neither did we. Um, so we set up an, an appointment for two days hence to get together. And Philip said, he'll put on a pot of tea and he'll tell us about the Baha'i faith. And so we said, fine. It turned out the next day, though, Philip and I had to make a trip from Dublin to Cork to deliver 100 pounds of rice to a store. And, uh, and uh, we had put it on the train in the past, but it would break open, and by the time it got there, there was no rice left in the bag. So we decided we had time, we had nothing else to do, and a, a trip to Cork is a four-hour drive. It's a pleasant drive. Let's do that. We'll, we'll get it there ourselves and not, put, not use the train. And so we did, and we were halfway to Cork, and we ran out of small talk. And I said, hey, you know, we got this appointment tomorrow night, you know, Mary Kay and I, but to t- you know, learn about your Baha'i faith thing. But why don't you tell me now? So, Philip did. And it took him, uh, he's driving the car, and it took him about 20 minutes to give me the fundamental understanding of what, you know, we, we you know the, the various uh, religions and the prophets of, of God who have come, you know, what we call progressive revelation, the... That was really the main story he told this, told me, and uh, it took about 20 minutes, and I was shocked. I was absolutely dumbfounded. Mm. It was like someone hit me over the head with a, a brick. Mm. I mean, I had no idea anything like this was going on in the world. That there were these ideas that Baha'u'llah was, you know, had lived, and that the teachings that he gave, because. Everything he said to me, word for word, I believed. I thought it was true. And I thought it was the way it's supposed to be. And in fact, most of what he said, I had already come to those conclusions on my own. They were contrary to the Catholic faith, but I didn't trouble, that didn't trouble me because, you know, as Catholics, you're pretty free. I mean, I grew up with a lot of Catholics in my Polish family, <laughs> and believe me, they kind of did it their own way. <laughs> So I kind of always had these ideas that um, were contrary, but it, that didn't seem to be a conflict for me. And But then again, here was this religion that essentially had in it the basic teachings, which were things I already, agree, I already believed, mm. and didn't know that there was any kind of an organized faith that actually focused on, 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 the, on these things. Mm-hmm. You know, the understanding of what the other religions were, you know that there, you know Christ wasn't the only one that God sent. In fact, mm. even the Catholics know that the Bible, the Old Testament, is full of you know revelations from God. And so, if that was true, and Christ was another, why weren't there others as well? And I, that was one of the things I thought of. Mm. The other thing that struck me <laughs> was um, 
and this is very personal, but I remember growing up in uh, getting all of the um, catechism classes as a Catholic and learning the stories of the uh, Christian martyrs. I mean, they were remarkable mm-hmm. stories and yeah. lovely stories. Yeah. People whose dedication to their faith led them to you know, being severely tested and punished and even dying. And so the early Christians, those who became Christian in the early years when Christ appeared, you know, suffered greatly. And, and imagining and hearing these stories as a kid, I always thought, what if I had lived mm-hmm. during those times? You know, there were very few who became followers of Christ you know, during his lifetime and then even soon thereafter very small band of people for hundreds of years and I always wondered would I have been one of them and I, I said to myself I came to the conclusion that yes I would have oh really there's no doubt I would have been among those early Christians regardless of what that would mean to me personally wow. And uh, but it was a kind of a an indulgent attitude because it's easy to say that because I would never be tested. Right. You know, right. it was thousands of years ago, and I right. would not go through or be put to the test that all of those people went through. Right. And and then it occurred to me when I learned of the appearance of Baha'u'llah and his teachings that I was actually being put to the test. How's that? When Christ uh, had come, if I had lived during that time, would you have and accepted someone would have Christ? told me the yeah. message of Christ, mm. would I have become a Christian? Right. Or stayed with the conventionality of or Judaism. That's right. Or whatever I might have been. Right. And or the Romans, for that matter. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And so here I was as a Roman Catholic, being told that the fulfillment of what the Catholic faith was here to to achieve, what Christ came to achieve, mm-hmm. uh, has happened, and that Baha'u'llah was the one that we've been waiting for, and that as a good Catholic, my job is to recognize the next step, the return, essentially the return of Christ, which I know is viewed differently by different Christian religions and the Roman Catholic interpretation of that and understanding of that and teaching of that is also maybe not exactly the way I, I understood it, but it was the way I understood it. And I always thought that, yeah, Christ would return, and, but I had no idea that I would live it, be alive at a time when that message would come to me. And then I would be able to find out whether my childhood wandering um, in my mind that, of course, I would become a follower is true or not. And so I accepted it instantly on the spot. So I went from a person of not interested at all to a believer and a a member of the Baha'i faith um, instantly. Wow. And what was happening on the other side of the, uh, with Mary Kay and <laughs> on, on the other side of things? Well, you know, we, it was funny, we, we got to, we got home, uh, we, we, first we went, you know, Philip told me afterwards, I don't even remember, it was a blur. Right. He says, Chet, after I told you the story, you know, he said, all you did for the rest of the distance to Cork, and then the entire four hours back again, you just asked questions, and I answered them for you. I just don't remember that. I have no recollection of what happened. I was in a daze. When we got to Cork, we went to a, we stopped at a home of a Baha'i there who was having gatherings in her home. An elderly woman, must have been in her 70s or maybe even 80s, who was having gatherings in her home every evening to tell people about the Baha'i faith who were interested in knowing. And every night she had 100 people what? who were not Baha'i. The entire house was filled. Her stairways, people were lined up and sitting on her stairways. At this point in the the early 70s, Ireland was leading Europe 
in the number of people becoming Baha'i. And this was happening all over Ireland. And so totally invisible to you. Totally, <laughs> I had no idea. I had no idea whatsoever that this was going on. That's right. And so all of a sudden, here I was, literally a believer, though not say formally, you know, signed up, you know, on the list, the membership list. And Mary came. My wife didn't even know about it. Anyway, we got back, and <laughs> he dropped me off at the house. I went to Mary Kay, and I said, "You know, Mary Kay, on the way to Cork, I asked Philip to tell me about this Baha'i thing." And I said, "This is amazing. I can't even tell you what he told me. I don't even know what he told me, but it's amazing." And I'm going to let him, rather than me try to tell you what I thought he said, tomorrow night he'll tell you, and we'll see what you think. So uh, we went to his house the next night, and sure enough, he put on a pot of tea, and he and Jane were there, and Philip told the story, again, about 20 minutes to Mary Kay, and and she was struck by it, too. Mm. And, uh, you know, mm. it was, um, yeah, it was uh, mm. remarkable remarkable story that he told mm. and the story of the Baha'i faith and of Baha'u'llah is amazing mm. it's re- you know it's funny it's, I, I, I reflect on this and I realized I wasn't interested in the Baha'i faith but I didn't know what I wasn't interested in when I learned something about it all of a sudden I turned from being disinterested to finding that this was wow very powerful and something tremendously appealing and so Knowing something about it, I think, is actually quite valuable for anyone because then you can decide whether you're not interested or not. Mm. Uh, without knowing something, you know, it's hard to know whether or not this is what you would care, f- you know, to to follow. Yeah. So, you left Ireland a bit different than when you went to Ireland. Oh my gosh! Absolutely. Yeah. Actually, I learned of this in the car the next night. We went to Philip and Jane's house. And then for the next five nights, we did something Baha'i every night. Because there's something going on in Dublin. It was a hotbed of Baha'i activity. Every night there was something going on. Deepenings, firesides, gatherings, parties, you know, whatever. And we went from one thing to the next to the next to the next. And for five nights in a row. And then we for- before we left the country, we formally enrolled in the faith. Um, signed a little card. So we got on the membership list of the Irish Baha'i community days before we got on a plane and left and I have to say it was a dazzling experience because at that point it was like why am I leaving Mm. I should stay here I've learned of something very remarkable from these people and I'd love to be with them more but then I figured well there's Baha'is everywhere so we came to New England Mm -hmm. we chose New England as the place we wanted to live and I figured I'd now have to look for work here so I came and did Mm -hmm. that and why is it that you picked New England? Well, uh, a lot of people from Ohio actually come east rather than going west, it seems. Um, maybe because it's within a reachable distance. You know, you can drive from New England to Ohio, where my family was. And Mary Kay's family was in Buffalo. We read a lot. Of it. When we were in Ireland, we studied places in the United States. And I, uh, and we looked at and, and ranked places. Our first choice was actually... This is really going to sound strange, but it was Farmington, Connecticut. was number one on our list of places to live. Number two was Portland, Maine. Number three was Boston. Number four was Minneapolis, Minnesota. And number five was Denver. So those are the five places we chose where we would live or settle when we come back from from Ireland. So I looked for work remotely, writing letters to every design firm in the Farmington area 
and nobody responded, so I gave up on that. And in Portland, same thing. There wasn't much work in Portland at those in those days. Now there is, but it wasn't then. Hmm. I went to Boston, I, and I found work, and I found very good firms there, and I found two firms that offered me positions, but I really decided I didn't want to be in the city. But then I kept hearing about this place in Connecticut. I said, I really want to, you know, I'm going for an interview. After the interview, whether I got an offer or not, I would say, hey, you know something? I'm really looking for a firm in the country. And uh, they kept saying, well, you know, there's a firm, a very good design firm in Connecticut. And they said, I I don't know where it is. And one said it was called um, IDC, an industrial design consultants was the name of it. It was an industrial design firm. And I went to the library, Boston Library, to research them and found that they were in Farmington, Connecticut. And of all the firms I wrote to, they, I didn't write to them because they didn't show up because they ran a industrial design firm. All the databases I went to were advertising and graphic design. But being an industrial design firm, they still do graphics. They didn't show up, and so I never wrote to them. And it turned out I phoned them up. They were hiring. I came down, was interviewed, offered a job, and I then worked for the firm for quite a few years, probably about 20 years, and then I bought the firm with a partner. So yeah. I've owned the firm for now about over 15 years. Now, how did Farmington become the top of your list <laughs> in the United States to live? Yeah, I know. it was. It's really odd, isn't it? There's so many... Well, I read lots of books about places in the United States to live. Farmington had a number of things. One is more century homes. You know, homes over 100 years old than any town in the United States. So architecturally, and I always cared about architecture. Arch- in fact, As if I didn't become... I can understand that. Well, I, thought, I actually enrolled to be an architect before I went to the Cleveland Institute of Art. Um, so before I decided to go to painting and then graphic design, I was going to be an architect. And so it's been an interest. And so what, what changed your direction? Well, I actually, I enrolled in the uh, University of Cincinnati School of Architecture, and they sent me just weeks before I was supposed to show up. They sent me the prospectus, and I saw all this science and math, uh, and I thought, oh my gosh, is that what I really want? I'm good at that stuff, but is that what I want right, to do? Right. And I said, no, I want to be a painter. The romantic notion of the painter living in New York in a loft, yeah, you know, all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah. And doing what you want to do. Yeah, exactly. So I decided, no, 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 to be an architect is going to be too, it's like too hard. I, I, I really want to do something that's just pure spirit. And so painting was it. Any of it, that's how I, but the architecture of Farmington, from what I read, sounded brilliant. And I wanted to be there. I wanted to live and work in Farmington and be surrounded by this wonderful environment. Also, it was within two hours of New York and Boston. And I thought, wow. I didn't want to live in the city or work in the city, but to get access to the cities, what could be better? And then, again, the location in central Connecticut, giving access to um, Vermont and Maine and all that the New England offers sounded pretty good. It sounded mm-hmm. like a great base in order to take advantage of this part of the country. And it was. it turned out to be that. And uh, it's uh, living in Connecticut has been brilliant, and we do take advantage. Mary Kay and I go all over New England often, and uh, enjoy every bit of it. Mm-hmm. And it's like we're on vacation every week, you know. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we adopted this place and chose it, and it's lived up to everything we expected, mm-hmm. um, you know, was was quite wonderful. So you lived initially in Farmington? <clears throat> no, no, I worked there, but um, the design firm was there. The design firm now is in Simsbury, but the the firm was there uh, for for a lot of years. 
in, in the center of Farmington. And uh, the and we lived in, uh, first we lived in Avon, then New Britain, then Suffield. Mm-hmm. We were living in New Britain, and Sarah was ready for kindergarten, and we had a son born as well. And we took Sarah to the enrollment for kindergarten, and what we experienced was not at all impressive about the school, the school system, and the way they approached children. And, you know, they had little airplane candies made out of a fuselage. Was one candy bar, the wing was another candy bar, and they gave you this mm. to the kids mm. at, when they were enrolling them for kindergarten with the parent. You know, I thought, wait, something's wrong here. I knew enough about nutrition to know this is not what you do with children. And so I, qu- I was, you know, questioning their approach to education as well as the way they treat kids. So, anyway, we started looking at models of education in the area and discovered at Suffield, which wasn't that far, had just implemented a couple of years before a new model of education called the ANISA model, which was developed at the University of Massachusetts by Dwight Allen and Don Streets and uh, Dan Jordan, Mag Carney, uh, Patabi Rahman, Beth Bowen. There's a whole long list of people, all Baha'is. And it turns out that the model of education was based on the teachings of, of Baha'u'llah, Though that wasn't well known at the time because that wasn't something that they would want anyone to know that a religious philosophy was the underpinnings of it. But nevertheless, it was. And um, the model was fully implemented through preschool through grade four in Suffield. And it was working beautifully. And the, I talked to the superintendent of schools in Suffield as well as the administrator, the in-service administrator for the ANISA model in the town. And, uh, and their vision was that each year they would uh, take ANISA one more year. It was through fourth grade at that point when we moved here, and then it would go through the entire school system. And uh, we thought, wow, this is this is great. What could be better for Baha'i parents to have your Baha'i children go through an education model in the public school system, which is based on uh, philosophy and principles that are absolutely consistent with the teachings of, of Baha'u'llah. Mm-hmm. And the town was in love with this model of education. It was a radical departure from anything they had been doing, and, um, and there was a lot of excitement about it. Did you ever find out how they got a hold of the model, how they were aware of the model? <clears throat> yeah, they, the town was dissatisfied with its educational system, and they prized it and valued, you know, uh, there's a lot of interest in the town, the people of the town. Uh, it's the town government style, um, you know, the way this town meeting town works, the town meetings, and and they didn't, they weren't happy with the school system, so they decided to um, to shop around looking for models of education that they could implement, and they looked everywhere, and did a broad search, and discovered this model of education being developed at the University of Massachusetts, the ANISA model, and in comparing it to the others, they were most impressed. And in fact, Dan Jordan and others from UMass came to the town meetings and made presentations to the whole town of this model of education. And the town voted to bring it on. And they got a government grant, a federal grant, that paid half of the cost to implement it. And the town came up with a balance of you know, the other half. So for us to find a town that cared about education that much, to actually you know, determine that theirs wasn't right and the search for one, and then find one that was consistent with the principles of the Baha'i faith were, it was pretty remarkable. Even to this day, people in Suffield and in Amherst and all over New England probably don't even realize that the University of Massachusetts developed a model of education like this. 
and that uh, this was uh, yeah, the, there was a relationship between the Baha'i faith and uh, the Anisa model that was implemented in the Southfield school system. Mm-hmm. Do you know where the <coughs> name Anisa <coughs> came from by any chance? It's a Persian word that means uh, tree of life. So the symbol for Anisa was a tree with the leaves bearing fruit. Uh, you know, the edu- you know, which being the individual growing and maturing and and finding the qualities within them drawn out mm. and mined like gems mined you know gems of great value within the child are found and brought to the surface so that the child and society could make use of them I mean, that's the concept you know it's obviously a very you know those who are behind know that that's a key concept of the teachings of Baha'u'llah mm. and that was the way Anissa viewed the child but they also did something that I think was beyond even just the connection to the by faith, but the Anisa model attempted to do something that was like the holy grail of education, and that was to find a unified theory of curriculum. No one had ever been able to do it. They still, you know, it was always very segmented. Yeah, there's curriculum developed for the physical ed part, for the sciences, for literature, for you know, um, um, the arts. And they're all individual, and they're developed independent of one another. And they didn't view the child holistically. So um, no one had developed a philosophy of education, a philosophy of the individual, of a child, and then a philosophy of curriculum in the various branches of knowledge that would unify it all so that the child could be viewed as a single individual and growing and developing where one branch of knowledge affects the other and the whole child matures and grows at its own rate. So that if a child could take on knowledge and capability rapidly, the school system would allow them to do it. Mm. And uh, those children who needed more attention in certain areas would get it so that the teacher became a... um, um, like a doctor who would analyze the condition of the child and give them what they needed in order for them to then progress to the next stage. Mm-hmm. And um, d- it was all just brilliant. And it worked, and it was wonderful, mm-hmm. um, we thought. And it affected the school system in Southfield remarkably. I must say, all of those who were trained and taught, in the, uh, you know, the teachers as well as the children, uh, really had an influence which was quite special and quite remarkable. Mm. So we're quite pleased that our children had got exposed to the Anissa in Suffield while it was in those strong early years, preschool through grade four. Mm. Back to your graphic design firm. You said you ended up buying it with a partner. <coughs> Where are things at now with your graphic design business? The firm is, is there and, and thriving. It's um, it's called uh, Donaldson McCoskey Incorporated in, in Simsbury. We had moved from Farmington to Avon and then last year to Simsbury. But I'm at a stage in my life and my career that it was time for me to exit the firm and let others come in and, and take it further. And uh, In fact, we just are changing the name of the firm again to the Donaldson Group. And this will be formal and official. Uh, my role in the firm is um, is more limited now. I'm exiting from it, and I only spend a few hours a week working for the firm um, in areas of branding and uh, packaging and uh, identity standards, which is my strength. That's my you know, training at the Cle- at the Art Institute as well as my 
career path uh, professionally was focused on those those areas. So I'm a resource to the company, but only a limited amount of time a week. Mm. And why is it taking that turn at this time? Well, I uh, two things. One is I'm transitioning out of the business, you know, converting my equity in the business, and, mm-hmm. and it's my time to do that for the benefit of myself as well as for the business. But also I find that <laughs> I've been serving the Baha'i faith in many ways, and that the uh, Baha'i faith in the United States, as in many parts of the world, are organized and, and ad- administered by a national body that administers the affairs of the Baha'is in the nation. But then the country is divided into five regions, and each region has a council. And the council is made up of nine people elected uh, democratically through secret ballot. So the nine northeastern states, New England, New York State, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania, make up a region. Well, I was elected, and my wife and I both were elected to that regional council a number of years ago. And so I've been serving on that council, and I got elected uh, secretary of the council. Now, the council administers the affairs of the faith on behalf of the national administrative body, and there's a lot of work. And mm. the council a year ago decided that the office of secretary needed to be a full-time position and asked if, since I was serving as secretary, would give up my design business and work full-time for the council. So I've been transitioning, and that prompted me to make the transition as well. It, mm. it was time for me to do it, but also so it coincided well with the needs of the faith. So I, for the last year, I've been spending less time with the design business and more time. In fact, I'm full-time with the um, Regional Baha'i Council right now, mm-hmm. serving the Baha'is in nine states and uh, finding it to be enormously remarkable, rewarding, and just terrific work. Well, Chet, thank you very much. Warren, it was great to be with you and to be able to talk about things that may matter to you and to others. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Chet McCoskey, a Baha'i and a graphic designer. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Nothing about, and very happy.
me with just breathing in and out. The wonders when you say, let's go make a difference, they'll say, nah, that's okay. Well, don't waste time on the flip side, cause I do know the real on the flip side. And I'm crystal clear every day, that's why I say.
WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station.